Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. On today's episode, we are celebrating 10 years since the release of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. We are actually recording on the anniversary, so it's very emotional up in here. We're going to talk about where we were, what we were thinking when the Harry Potter franchise was coming to an end. It was a very emotional time because we really felt like that was the end, but of course it wasn't. So we'll talk about all of that, but first, we are also joined today by MuggleCast listener and Patreon supporter, Molly. Hi, Molly. Welcome to the show. Hey. Hey, you are in Nashville, right? Yes, I am. Very cool. Let's get your fandom ID. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my favorite book and my favorite movie are both Goblet of Fire. Uh, my Hogwarts house is Hufflepuff. My Ilvermorny house is Pukwudgie. My Patronus is a Lynx. And my favorite scene in The Deathly Hallows Part 2, um, I just noticed it on my rewatch yesterday, is when Voldemort asks Lucius, how do you live with yourself? And Lucius says, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched it yesterday, too, and I laughed out loud when I saw yes. that part. It's just so sad. It's like, And damn, it was such man. a serious moment before right. that. Yeah. Believe in yourself, yo. Come on. <laughs> Anyway, we're excited to have you on, Molly, and we're excited to talk about Deathly Hallows Part 2 today. And thanks for your support on Patreon. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys for the show. We are celebrating the 10-year anniversary of Deathly Hallows Part 2, which is hard to believe. And and I, I love the fact that you mentioned we're recording on the exact date that it was released. We are. But let's, uh, let's talk about what we did to celebrate the finale. I know there were premieres, there were conventions. Honestly, I think I'm going to have to rely on you here, Andrew, because I don't totally remember what I did for um, the, <laughs> the release of the final film. Who here was at LeakyCon? Micah and I were. Eric? If, yes. If you remember Ivana joining us on stage for a MuggleCast, that was at this convention. And then if you were there, then you were here. And this is where you saw. And Micah forgets that. Can you yeah. believe that? Crazy. That's that's terrible. Nice. Don't tell Ivana that. Don't let her hear this episode. That was in the park, <laughs> right? If you, yeah. What I remember from that is, I guess by that point, they shifted midnight showings to like nine or ten p.m. Right? Or even it even it even got down to seven p.m. on Thursdays. Remember yeah. when you went to a midnight release? It was at midnight. Yeah. And then as time went on, these studios, thank goodness, started pushing the time earlier and earlier. And then got to the point where I think it was around 7, 8, or 9 p.m. I know at least I appreciated that. And there was a lot of open sobbing in the theater. That's one Definitely. thing I will never forget, particularly during the Forbidden Forest scene. Did any of you cry? Absolutely. Did you go to a midnight showing, 9 p.m.? So, unfortunately, no. Without giving away uh, too much of my personal business, I was um, 16 years old at the time and I was at a treatment facility. And mm. um, like I, I was so upset when I found out that I had to go to this treatment facility because I knew that Harry Potter was going to come out while I was in there and I wasn't going to be able to see it. And then on our very first outing, like we would take essentially field trips. And our first one was to a showing of The Deadly Hallows Part Two. So it was oh. me and like two other girls that knew nothing about Harry Potter 
So I was openly weeping in a almost empty theater with these two other randoms that were like, can you tell me what's happening? <laughs> and you were like, quiet, quiet. Let me just quiet. catch my breath. You were like, not now. <laughs> Read the books, darn it. Well, you mentioned the uh, the resurrection stone scene. I mean, I know somebody who's a good friend who, you know, doesn't read the books or just went to see the movies and said to me that she just openly bawled during that scene, just given the the raw emotion of it. And then I think another one would obviously be when Snape is murdered uh, in the boathouse. That's another one that got a lot of people yeah. crying around the theater. In terms of the resurrection stone, the Forbidden Forest, Harry is facing the end of his life. He's facing death and he's surrounded by his parents and Sirius and Lupin and talking to them all again. Like that's incredibly emotional. Yeah. So I get why people are crying in that one. And I think we knew too, it was saying goodbye to the actors as well. It was kind of, you know, having that, that scene kind of functions as, you know, two parts because we know that that's the last time we're going to see like Gary Oldman, Sirius, for example, like we know Dumbledore is just around the corner. But Lupin Tonks, you know, and in some cases, that's their only lines in that film. So yeah. it was sad. It was saying goodbye to family. The other thing I remember is just going to a bar right after the movie finished in uh, Orlando, the the Emerald Bar restaurant yeah, in City Walk. Yeah, yeah. To your point about it starting early, like we went from the air conditioning cool theater where everyone's crying to like the blazing heat of like a Florida night. And it was actually a really nice, yep. like it was shocking, but it like shocked me out of it to where I was like, okay, this is now, it was like crossing a threshold. And now every minute is the next minute of the rest of our lives. Now that Harry's over. My tears are replaced by sweat. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, where were you? Um, So I was actually in Costa Rica when part two came out. I, had just graduated university and I moved down there to take a teaching job. Um, So one of my co-teachers and I, he's also quite like a lifelong Harry Potter fan. We went to see it together in theaters. And uh, when it was over, I'll never forget, he turned to me and he was just like, it's the end of an era. And I was like, yeah, you're so right. And I will say like, I was so glad to move there and live there. But in that moment, I did feel the tiniest bit of regret that I wasn't at a convention Mm. or like with a big group of fans. Obviously, lots of Harry Potter fans in Costa Rica. I just didn't know very many at the time because I just moved there. And in a way, at the time, it felt like your last chance to go to a convention or fan event. Yeah. Well, that's the irony of uh, my friend making his end of an era comment because it wasn't. (laughs) You were like, nah, they're going to announce a spinoff in two years. And then he was like, okay. Yeah. (laughs) There was the world premiere in London. And that very much felt like an ending as well because the trio, Dan, Rupert, Emma, uh, the producers, the Davids, uh, director David Yates as well, and then J.K. Rowling were all there, and the trio and Rowling all gave speeches at the world premiere, and this was broadcast live on the internet. And a lot of people will remember these speeches forever because they're very heartfelt. I want to play the speeches f- from the trio because I was watching this yesterday, and I just I, I had forgotten how moving these were. I would, uh, I'd just like to, I will disagree with you on one point there, David, which is I don't think the end of the story happens tonight, because before, don't, don't get too excited, it's not what you think, but because 
each and every person, not only in this square, but also watching around the world, who will see this film and who have followed these films over the last 10 years, will carry this story with them through the rest of their lives. And it will affect what they do. Um, so I would just like to say a huge thank you um, to all of you, first of all, for giving me a job. Um, and Joe for letting him give me a job. And... Um, it's been the most amazing, inspirational, surreal, bizarre, wonderful 10 years that I will probably ever have in all my life. And um, every opportunity I get from now on is all comes back to the fact that I got very, very lucky when I was 11. Um, so thank you very, very much. Um, Emma? I'm going to voice what I think everyone in the crowd is already thinking, which is that, Dan, you didn't get lucky. You were and are the perfect Harry and will be forever. Dan comes up and hugs her. Um, Thank you. Oh. <laughs> I know that's not really my place to say. It's actually Joe's, but um, she, she, chose, she chose Dan too. Um, Steve Clovis, you gave Hermione the voice that... I so hoped she would have, and she would have, and I'm so grateful she's every bit as strong and beautiful and great as she is in the book, and I'm very grateful. Joe, thank you for <laughs> writing these amazing books and for being... <laughs> That's it, I've gone. <laughs> such a role model to me in real life. Um, thank you to Rupert for making me laugh and being such a great brother. And thank you to Dan, same thing. I will miss you so much. And thank you to Warner Brothers for making these films the way they should have been made and giving them the support that they needed. And we went out as we should have done on a bang and I'm so proud to have been part of this, so just thank you so, so much. I'm really not very good at, at goodbyes. This, is, this has been such a, an emotional week. A year ago when we finished, I, I kind of thought I was kind of coming to terms with it and, and, and able to move on, but um, this really has been such an important part of my life. And um, Yeah, I want to thank all of you who have just made this um these last 10 years just the the best half of my life and um uh, and i'm just so pleased i've shared it with you two because you I, I love you i i really do and oh god david i just don't know i just don't know what to say i mean thank you doesn't seem to be kind of a strong enough word but um this is this has just been kind of I mean, I'm never, we're never, I'm never going to have this again. This is just, I'm finding it hard to now string together coherent sentences because it's, it is really emotional. I, I really, what you've done for ginger people, um, it's just, I cannot kind of put that into words. So thank you, Joe. And I just wanted to get to that part. Um, so <laughs> that's the best part. Yeah, exactly. As you can tell, though, everybody is very emotional, and like I said, it really felt like a major major ending in the lives of not not just the trio but our own lives as well and i still remember watching that speech those speeches live and just being really moved by how open and emotional everybody was so the movie 
of course, came out a few days later, and it went on to receive a 96% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, the highest of any Harry Potter movie, which is interesting. The Rotten Tomatoes fan rating was also the highest of any Harry Potter movie. I had forgotten it did so well, review-wise. Were you guys surprised by that? I'm surprised to hear that now, because I think over time, sort of the rose glasses that we were wearing when we watched it have since faded and i wouldn't say we've treated it with open derision at this point but i remember us being a little hard or a little skeptical about the whole film basically taking place in the battle of hogwarts and maybe being tonally empty or missing something i feel like we've forgotten and until i had rewatched the film in preparation for this episode I had forgotten that it does actually have a lot of charm and kind of like we were just listening to Dan Rupert and Emma say goodbye and J.K. Rowling was, you know, up there with them and thank her. The film really does play like a almost not greatest hits, but one last adventure. And so when you're watching it, you can't help but realize that these really are the characters that these actors have had in their whole lives, et cetera, et cetera. So if you factor all that in, Deathly Hollows Part 2 is actually it hits me right in the feels to this day, but it was Mm -hmm. easy to kind of forget that maybe that was what everyone felt at the time was that it was this profound, you know, work of art that really captured everyone's performance at the height of their game. Yeah. I think it's also easy to be skeptical about this movie because so much of it does take place during the battle of Hogwarts. And I think that there was always going to be some faction of the fandom that was not going to be pleased by how the Battle of Hogwarts was portrayed. I certainly have my issues with it. You know, we've talked about this before, but my main issues uh, really come down to the really bad 3D stuff. I really felt like that kind of diminished some of the death scenes that happened. Um, But overall, when you're thinking about some of the earlier portions of the film, sort of like pre-Battle of Hogwarts, it is pretty perfect in my opinion. Yeah. Mm. I have I really I have very few complaints about the movie and we're going to get into particular scenes <laughs> in a little bit. Laura, don't give away your debate points though. I don't <laughs> want Andrew coming back later on and referencing earlier points of the episode. As far as the the, the high rating, I, I mean, I'm not surprised. I I guess it would be interesting to see how it compares to other finales in other movie franchises and if it's higher, lower, or about the same. There may have been some emotion at play when critics were reviewing it. I don't know. But it is a very good movie. Again, looking back on it, watching it last night, I was like, damn, I've got no issues with this movie. I do, but I don't. They're little. <laughs> They're, I know I know exactly They're what you little, mean. Yeah, they don't ruin the movie for me. Yeah. I guess that's what I mean. You know, I was surprised that this film, however, did not get the full Return of the King treatment at the Oscars. Right. Because that was sort of the precedent that was set, you know, with 13 Oscars or 12. It just kept winning, you know, when Lord of the Rings ended and Harry Mm -hmm. Potter walked away with part two without getting any Oscars still. I think it got one. No, didn't it get one? Oh, Fantastic Beasts has one. Yeah. Okay. But so it kind of felt in a way like a cliffhanger, because while the fans might have been satisfied, I think there was like this industry idea that maybe it wasn't a great movie or something. I'm not sure. It always felt kind of cliffhangery because of that, because for as much as the series affected our lives, it didn't have as much of a critical impact 
the way that other even fantasy series had by that point. Laura did mention 3D. I am so glad that 3D didn't stick around for long. Seriously. I don't remember if we saw it in 3D at that midnight premiere in Orlando. Hard to say. I definitely saw it in 3D and just yeah. really, really had strong feelings. But again, we can hold on wow. to some of this. I don't think we, I mean, obviously I'm not the most reliable source here, right, but I don't right. think we did see it in 3D. Thank goodness. I do have a picture from inside the theater before the movie started, and I didn't see any 3D glasses. So, Oh, yeah, that's usually a huge indicator. The <laughs> uh, But the, the CGI effects I remember, or actually having just watched it, that ha- strike me as being the worst are the flower growing in Lily's hand and the resurrection stone landing in Harry's palm. And I feel like both of those might have been for 3D purposes mm. that they like made them because they made them cgi they didn't even have to make them cgi like i don't know if that was like some attempt to do something three-dimensional you know that moment where harry and voldemort's faces meld into one how I could i forget that, that i thought that moment well some people probably want to just erase it from their memories oh it's the best <laughs> the best so i think they made that scene specifically for 3d audiences that seems like it would pop in 3d Definitely when the uh, when the Death Eater flies through the window and is repelled by Kingsley's spell back out. Yeah, I right. think that was too. So we'll get into some new and notable characters and then we're going to get into some movie omissions and movie changes. So there's lots to discuss today. But first, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Taking care of your mental health is one of the most important things you can do for yourself. And if you think there's something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals, check out BetterHelp. They will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist who you can work with via voice, video, or text chat. BetterHelp lets you easily and quickly get started with therapy right from wherever you are now. Within 48 hours, you can start speaking with a therapist and the services available for clients worldwide. Whether you're at home, at work, on the go, in the park, about to watch a movie at midnight, you can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. Therapy is a lot like dating. The first match isn't always going to be perfect, so if you're not meshing with your therapist, that is perfectly fine and normal. You can easily switch and then work with someone more to your liking. Again, therapy can be so helpful, so I want you to try BetterHelp, and we have a special offer for MuggleCast listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com MuggleCast. Again, get 10% off at BetterHelp, that's betterhelp.com slash MuggleCast today. So I thought a good way to get us started would, would be to talk about all the new and notable characters that showed up in Deathly Hallows Part 2, of which I could really only find two. And uh, we're going to ignore the fact that Aberforth kind of peeked through the mirror in Deathly Hallows Part 1. I don't really think we got a... <laughs> official chance to meet Kieran Hines uh, that way. But uh, Aberforth is certainly a character that plays uh, an important role in Deathly Hallows Part 2 when the trio show up in Hogsmeade. And then, of course, he joins the battle a little bit later on. And uh, the second would be Kelly McDonald, who played 
the gray lady. On Aberforth, I loved how he was portrayed in the movie. He was rough around the edges. He wasn't particularly nice to the trio. <laughs> it was it was a nice juxtaposition from what we see from Albus Dumbledore. Aberforth is not the super nice guy that you see from Albus, although he does kind of rede- redeem himself by then in the movie. Yeah, I really like Kieran Hines' portrayal, and they actually added prosthetics to him to make him look more like he would be Michael Gambon's brother. And I think that they, that actually comes off looking really good. Um, we're going to talk about certain prosthetics and things later <laughs> as it pertains to the epilogue. But I think as far as Aberforth, they did great work and the performance shines through. You know, the dialogue is very terse when he says, you know, that's a boy's answer that you trusted him. Um, it, it just all very much flows. It's still kind of summary based on, you know, he doesn't tell the full story of Ariana or anything like that. But you get what you need to be able to move the story for and the plot along. And I think that it it does work pretty well. Yeah. As a Game of Thrones fan, when you see uh, Kieran Hines uh, as Mance Raider, you would definitely not think he played Aberforth Dumbledore. The, to your point, Eric, just the work that they were able to make him do to look like Michael Gambon's Dumbledore was pretty impressive. Yeah. I'm glad they didn't try that in 3D. <laughs> Maybe a goat in 3D would have been nice. (laughs) That's true. There was a goat missing from that scene. By the way, I know we're about to jump and talk about some notable movie omissions, but a goat in um, the Hogshead was certainly something that was not included in Deathly Hallows Part 2. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It would have been totally inappropriate. I agree with Eric on a lot of those points. Um, I I was really impressed with how much he looked like Dumbledore. I was actually going to ask if any of you knew if he had used prosthetics. So that makes a lot of sense. And I really enjoyed the sassy Harry line where he said, I don't care about what happened between you and your brother. I really thought that brought out like sassy Harry from the book was very good, but I really appreciated the whole scene. And this really shows how much he has grown over the course of the story willing to stand up to Aberforth in this way. Yeah, I think it's also just an interesting juxtaposition to see a character who's really not all that impressed by Albus. You know, throughout the books and movies, we see people who are either impressed by him, they're in awe of him, or we see people who are fearful of him because they recognize what an accomplished wizard he is. And Aberforth is like... Yeah, he's kind of a shit brother, (laughs) you know? It's like, you didn't have to live with him the way that we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My brother says the same things about me. (laughs) 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 There's too much emotion today. (laughs) To the point of Kelly McDonald being introduced as the great lady, I thought they did a really good job in maybe to like the composition of the shot or whatever, but she really does feel like that moment when she shouts at Harry, she's like, it's otherworldly. It's kind of in the way that you don't want to like end up being haunted by this ghost kind of thing. I just thought it was a really good scene. And the character, like the actress portrays a character that I think fits in the world very nicely. She's kind of half of the earth and half not. And I thought it was done really well by Kelly McDonald. I agree. All right. So we're going to talk about some notable movie admissions. Now, granted, these aren't things that absolutely have to be in Deathly Hallows Part 2, but it maybe would have been nice. And we're also going to talk about the fact that some of these things um, you know, were 
kind of improvised on by David Yates and David Heyman. First up is that Harry is Teddy's godfather. Now, we know that um, this is something that actually gets mentioned by Lupin to Harry in what would have been Deathly Hallows Part 1 at the wedding, but it still would have been nice to see this play itself out. We know that Teddy Lupin was in fact cast for the epilogue. He doesn't end up showing up in the epilogue, but uh, I think at least from a reader standpoint, we felt that this kind of brought a number of things full circle, uh, considering that um, Teddy loses both of his parents, much like Harry uh, does. And of course that Harry loses his godfather in Sirius. And now Harry is going to be taking on the same role with Teddy. So this is a small one, but I think something that fans would have appreciated. So does that mean Teddy didn't get any mentions at all in the Harry Potter movies? Tonk says that they're going to have a baby and that's the extent of it. There is a deleted scene too, where Lupin's like, where's Teddy when Tonks shows up to the battle? So maybe that would have been good to have been included just so Teddy got a mention. But I guess if he's not appearing in the epilogue either, then to movie viewers, they didn't find it so important to include what's weird because during the resurrection stone scene harry says to lupin oh your son's gonna grow up without a parent i'm like wait did they even announce tonks's oh. pregnancy in the movies like did we even know tonks was pregnant and we we did like you mentioned but it was like barely not in this film i don't think mm-hmm. so it's weird for harry to be concerned with for movie harry to be concerned with your son's gonna grow up without any parents because it really wasn't a part of the movies right and it was luke newberry the actor who was cast as Teddy Lupin. So I actually think that he shot scenes for the epilogue and, and was on the train to Hogwarts, but then for whatever reason, they made the decision to cut him from that scene. Um, Eric, you mentioned this earlier, but uh, Aberforth doesn't really get to tell the full story about Ariana. And uh, there's a lot of really good information that comes out during this whole conversation between Aberforth and the trio and uh, Harry even, you know, going back to what we were talking about on last week's episode makes reference to when Dumbledore was drinking the potion. And we finally find out what it was that he saw, at least what Harry thinks that he saw. And that was Grindelwald uh, torturing um, Ariana and Aberforth. So again, I don't know that all this information needed to be in there, but I think, Uh, it gives a little bit more insight into Dumbledore's character. One of the things I would have liked to have seen is Harry saving Professor McGonagall uh, from the Karos. Uh, He he uses the Cruciatus curse on Amicus Caro after Amicus spits on her. This is in Ravenclaw Tower. And it just shows Harry's love for McGonagall. And we we get some of that, I think, in the scene between the two of them in the Great Hall after Snape um, escapes. But this was really kind of that defining moment between these two characters. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree for sure. I think that we're missing a lot of those kinds of moments between Harry and McGonagall throughout the movie adaptations. You know, we get so much more of it in the books. And I can just see this being an example of something that the filmmakers were like, you know, we got to prioritize what absolutely needs to be on the screen. But yeah, I agree. I would have liked to see this too. 
Yeah. The interaction you see is she asks, what can we give you? And, and Harry says to McGonagall, time as much of it as you can. And, you know, that's pretty much their interaction. And McGonagall says, it's good to see you, which is cute. Yeah. I don't know. I can, at this point, <laughs> 10 years removed, I can't complain about them leaving things out because we've we've spoken about this so many times on the show. There just isn't time to fit it all. And this is after they created two books out of or two movies mm-hmm. out of one book. It's interesting you say that because that's so, going to be one of the points piece. Uh, that I raise during the debate. You talk about timing. Okay. It's actually the shortest of all the movies. Well, less is more sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. And I think, too, like not to like jump into the debate early, but I think there's <laughs> also a point to be made here about, yes, it would be completely unreasonable to say the filmmakers must include every last little thing. It's never going to happen. But you can have opinions about what they thought should be prioritized versus what hit the cutting room floor. And I think that is probably going to be the meat of what we discuss later in the episode. The sooner the movie ended, the sooner I would get to go to Emerald's Bar. So I had no complaints. <laughs> Andrew Andrew was like, I got to pee. <laughs> well, Let me out. I gotta step into that Orlando sweat. While we're that talking Orlando about heat. well, omissions though, what fits is you know, as you said, Micah, this was released so close to the world premiere that that a lot of people saw this movie here first. That includes some cast members that were at LeakyCon that year. They this was the first time that they saw the finished version of the film, and I believe at least one of them was surprised to find that certain scenes that had been filmed were not in it. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm pretty sure Awkward. that if you were to ask Sean Biggerstaff, he he filmed scenes. If you were to ask Chris Rankin, there was probably a Percy return scene. These are not in the film. And, and Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong. They're not in the deleted scenes either. No. And no. there's definitely like there there's clearly footage of several of these kind of character returns to the point of what we're talking about. These little moments that just aren't in the film. And it is questionable. Why not? Especially if it would have given us two more seconds of uh, Fred mm-hmm. before dying, you know, to say, Purse, you're back. Right. Yeah. And what were those uh, cast members responses to uh, Voldemort's portrayal in certain scenes? Uh, I, I mean, I wasn't sitting next to him, but <laughs> I I know I was delighted. If <laughs> I seem to remember everyone was Pretty happy about the hug when it happened. Pretty happy. It was it was good. Comedy. That's one way to put it. <laughs> that by itself should have won Deathly Hallows Part Two an Oscar. I agree. <laughs> but uh, just to wrap up the the notable movie omissions, Neville doesn't have his head lit on fire. I think maybe that would have been a little bit too much for uh, certain <laughs> people going to the movie theater. Um, it was what rated PG thirteen. Maybe that would have up upped it to an R rating if you're lighting a kid's head on fire? Probably. Yep. Would it be his whole head? I mean, if it's just his hair that's on fire, that would probably be Yeah, it was the sorting hat anyway that was on fire. Not That's true. Oh, yeah. yeah. That would I think cool. it would have been fine. <laughs> I mean, Seamus lights his hair on fire every movie, so I right, feel like exactly. Neville... Yeah, but it goes up in flames. It's a flash, and then it's gone. It's not extended torture of somebody. Mm-hmm. We said a couple of weeks ago the Sorting Hat's a fraud, so I would have appreciated seeing it <laughs> be 
being lit on fire. Yeah. Honestly, the, the two seconds we got of Emma Thompson as Trelawney in, in this battle, when I was watching the movie, I was like, she shouldn't be there. Andrew won't like this. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we didn't get any chance to really interact with portrait Dumbledore. And I think that's something that uh, I know I would have enjoyed. And, and certainly them walking back into Dumbledore's office with all of the former headmist- headmasters and headmistresses cheering and, and excited for the fact that they had taken down Voldemort. And Harry kind of runs through, you know, the resurrection stone and what he did with that. And, you know, then he goes and repairs his his old wand. But um, they had a, a a different ending in mind, a little weird one, honestly, with the three of them kind of standing there in front of Hogwarts and Harry just tossing the uh, uh, the wand after he snaps it into the ravine there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it would have been cool to get Portrait Dumbledore. But I I think uh, Michael Gambon certainly delivered in the King's Cross scene. So I think that that he was did. fine yeah, for sure. to, to leave it there. And then just some some notable movie changes. Some of these were, I think, fine. I don't, I don't think there's any real debate here. Um, although, Eric, you might have a few things to say when we get to Fred's death scene. But the whole boom, you know, blowing up the uh, the bridge, I thought that was just really a fun addition. Boom! Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, was. it looks great too. Like I don't, I wasn't wearing my 3D glasses, but it still looked real fun in the movie. And then uh, just a couple of notable scene changes: the uh, Ron and Hermione kiss happening in the Chamber of Secrets. That does not happen that way in the book. I think you know for effect after they dest- destroy the Horcrux, it certainly works. And then a big one being that Snape does not die in a boathouse; he dies in the Shrieking Shack. Um, that. What was that again, Andrew? They did that just for sort of the the mood setting and like the light gleaming off the wall. I don't. I remember Yates or Heyman oh, saying something like that. You're not wrong. Yeah, they definitely commented on it. I personally find the boathouse to be a more dynamic scene. The Shrieking Shack is kind of like this generic wall. Like in in yeah. Ben, the movie, it's kind of sway. Like there's not as much of a significance, but I think water represents life. So having him right yeah. be at the water and his life is like flowing out of him is probably something like that. It's certainly a a more beautiful setting. I think also because they were there, they had the freedom to really be creative with how they portrayed the death scene. You know, I think that there is something to be said for less is more. And we were getting so many deaths in the movie already that getting Snape's death sort of through um, some fogged glass Ultimately, like getting that yeah. moment and then he and Harry, of course, have their final face to face. But it was just I-, I thought a good deal more shocking, actually, than it would have been if they had just shown everything as it happened. Yeah, I'm actually we talked about setting Neville's head on fire, but like PG-13, I'm surprised by Snape's death that that didn't get some kind of higher rating. You don't really see it though. You no, see it through don't. the dirty it's glass. Implied. But like, yeah, yeah but well, I was yeah. cringing. I I recoiled every time I heard the thwap against the glass because you oh, know yeah. what's yeah. happening. And there's blood. But to go back quickly to Micah's comment about the kiss being appropriate after the Horcrux is destroyed, I thought that was interesting that you said that. <laughs> Why? I mean, what were they? Get- I just, I, I mean, in the book, it happens because Ron is is advocating for the house elves and making sure that they're okay, and because they've cut the house elves out, essentially, 
it, it, it would work. Moment. Yeah. Look, I would kiss somebody too if I just successfully destroyed a Horcrux. So I, I get where they were coming from. It still was kind of abrupt, though. I think it was also just Andrew. That was I have a question for, for you. Would you still kiss someone not only after you destroyed a Horcrux, but after you both got drenched with two thousand year old sewer water? Nothing can get in the way of <laughs> of love, love. <laughs> real love, like Ron and Hermione. <laughs> You're just like holding their noses while kissing each other or something. (laughs) I love you. There was also Snape and Harry's confrontation in the Great Hall. That does not happen in the book. It's actually kind of a cool scene in the books, too, because McGonagall, and, and this is not long after the incident in Ravenclaw Tower that we were talking about earlier, runs into Snape in the hallway. They have a bit of a confrontation. And then she starts uh, to duel with him and the other heads of house show up and engage as well. And then Snape flees. So I, I just like the symbolism of all four houses kind of being united against Snape. But uh, I'll, I'll deal with the, uh, the Great Hall uh, because I thought it was actually very well done. Yeah, you kind of get the sense that McGonagall's just really sick of her colleague um, being evil. She's like, okay, like now's the now's the time to do the stand kind of a thing. But I feel like the other heads of house, namely Sprout, are underused in this movie. In the end, they're there. She's on set. You see Mary Margulies looking exhausted, sitting down, and Flitwick does get his time to shine. But I think overall, it could have been more like the scene in the books. It could have afforded to to be that way. And you talked a little bit about this earlier, Eric, Uh, Fred's death scene. It obviously happens off screen in uh, the movie, but in the book, Harry, you know, bears witness to it. Uh, And it's actually when Percy returns and it's a very kind of short lived conversation uh, between the two of them. Uh, They kind of have a little bit of a bonding moment and then things go uh, kind of out of control. The wall explodes and that's the end of Fred. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm not thrilled that it was, you know, not given the special moment. We just kind of see all the other Weasleys crowding around his body. Um, And similarly, Lupin and Tonks, they're reaching for each other. It cuts away after a couple seconds. The next time we see them, their bodies are like laying flat in the Great Hall and their hands are still kind of not touching. So I wonder if they like ever touched, if if that was like the moment that they died, something happened. Like, did they never quite make it? I don't know, because it just wasn't shown. And I feel like there's a certain point of adapting these to movies where you're like, it didn't happen in Harry's point of view. We can't show it. But then you have the Chamber of Secrets, which isn't from his perspective at all. But movie audiences would appreciate it because of the character journey that they've been on. It's exactly the same way. That's why you should have shown Lupin and Tonks dying, even though it's not in the books on screen either. Um, That's why you should show Fred and George is because the audience does care about these characters. And, we, you know. If we want to go numb through seeing it, at least give us that opportunity to see it. And we didn't. So it's a bit of a shame. And then just wrapping up the notable movie changes, the final duel between Harry and Voldemort uh, kind of takes place all over the place. (laughs) Uh, And we've talked about this in many an episode, but just the fact that you're not in the Great Hall surrounded by everybody else, that you're flying throughout Hogwarts, they're... Heads are intertwined with each other. Their bodies are intertwined with each other. And then they kind of just roll up out on the uh, the outdoor area there and duel each other. 
<laughs> one final time. There are some moments in that scene where I'm like, they actually tried to make this as stupid as possible. And I'm the thinking S&M. about when Voldemort's cloak just like comes out and like kind of wraps around Harry oh, from a distance. Yeah, like ribbons. Like, yeah. yeah, like big ribbons. They purposely tried to do something stupid there. And, no. I, and and yes, and Harry and Voldemort's faces melding and Harry grabbing Voldemort and throwing him over the ledge. Here's here's what I'll say was good about all that. And also seems like uh, the three Voldemort fireheads at the end of the, the diadem <laughs> fights and um, Voldemort hugging Draco. These were all very unexpected moments. And for most people coming into this movie, they have seen, they have read the book multiple times at that point. These scenes did surprise people. And I think that's great to have some genuine surprises for us to talk about. Because if they followed the book to a T, we wouldn't have much to say. Like, yeah, it was a good adaptation. Okay, moving on. But they add these these ridiculous scenes. <laughs> and again, I'm not mad. I'm not mad because it's stuff to talk about and it makes me lull. But they really, I think they purposely tried to be stupid <laughs> to give us something to talk about. You think they, they were purposely like, hey, Rafe, make like every <laughs> dumb, nasally sound you can. Oh, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Regarding the robes encircling Harry, that actually happens a ton in the books. People cast spells and ropes shoot from their wands. How dumb do you think that would actually look in real life? It would look about as dumb as it looks in Deathly Hallows. But Voldemort's standing there like super still and calm and just the the ropes are flowing out of him. Yeah, they tried it once. Maybe it didn't work, but that's why they didn't try it sooner. It's not a good look, but I'll agree with you there. But it absolutely has its place in the book. Some of them, one of them at mm. least, right? Yeah, maybe. Okay. I'll take a yeah, maybe. And uh, actually, JY pointed out in the chat that the set designer was the one who wanted to show the boathouse at least once. So going back to Snape's death scene, I'm glad finally um, that it made it into the movies when so many other things were cut. Yeah, man. Now I hope we see the underground lake, <laughs> one of the <laughs> Fantastic Beasts films. That's one of the I really want that. Molly, as a diehard fan, did these changes bother you? Most of them I was okay with. Um, I would have liked to see more of Fred and Percy's like reunion, but I know that they didn't really touch on how Percy had kind of, um, you know his allegiance was with the ministry for a while. They didn't really touch on that at all, except for like one scene in order of the Phoenix. I think you see Percy like walking with the minister. So it it wouldn't have made a lot of sense to have him come back, but that was one of my favorite scenes in the book. Um, the final battle I thought was ridiculous, but like, I, I don't, I don't mind so much now. I'm happy that we have yeah. Harry Potter movies to watch. Yeah. But it was a little ridiculous. I'm grateful. <laughs> As is Molly, it sounds mm-hmm. like. Yes, absolutely. Oh, and then one thing I wanted to mention before I forget, um, I noticed um, when I was watching last night when they destroyed the um, diadem, when they're in the room of requirement, right before the door shuts, um, they destroy it with the basilisk thing first and then they kick it in. And it's been a while since I've done a reread, but I think 
in yeah. the book, I think it's just the fiend fire That's that scorched. destroys the Horcrux. I think it gets left behind. So I, I thought that that was convenient, um, like mm. for the movie, so that everybody knew, yes, that Horcrux is destroyed. But I was like, <laughs> yeah. that's not what happened. Well, you mentioned that the trio of uh, Voldemort faces, right, uh, in the in the wall of fire, Andrew. Right. Yeah, well, it it does that two other times in this movie, including down in the Chamber of Secrets. It's just that the the Horcrux has this Voldemort inside it, you know, that's literally a part of his soul that's dying. And so he, you know, kind of grows up almost Imhotep style with like the nearest element he can find and forms his face in it. But like the smoke that comes out of the Horcrux is what does that. So I kind of like that because it is like an extra scream. You kind of feel the weight to each death of Voldemort's. And that includes the sounds that he makes, uh, Laura, the, the nasally uh, kind of a thing. That's the sound. <laughs> Save your impressions of for the a few villain minutes from now. dying. He's becoming mortal. Like, I think he would make a right. uh, kind of a that's how I sound in the morning, too, when I'm getting up. I'm pretty old. <laughs> but yeah, it's I, I'm OK with it because I think you really need to, in the book. Certain things work. But in reality, you would have a, a gasp of some sort or you know, some kind of involuntary noise. You know, a gasp makes total sense, but we're going to be getting into some examples <laughs> of things that were decidedly not gasps. On that note, <laughs> uh, wanted to uh, ask the group, what scene were we most looking forward to from the books? So obviously in reading Deathly Hallows, we all had scenes that we were really excited to see come to life on screen. Maybe some did, maybe some didn't, but Wanted to start asking Laura. Well, I feel bad because Eric had his in before I correctly had mine in, but mine was definitely um, the escape from Gringotts and really the whole Gringotts portion. I mean, Helena Bonham Carter playing Emma Watson, playing Bellatrix yes. was so mm -hmm. funny, really well done. Um, and I just really liked... Ultimately, I was really happy with what they did with this. It felt really raw and kind of gritty the way they approached it. I felt so bad for that dragon. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, somebody like adopt this dragon and just give it. I'm talking about it like it's a dog. I'm like, give it treats for the rest of time. Um, but yeah, I thought that they did a really, really good job there. And I think it's a testament to um, them following the book so closely for that portion of the story yeah everything's clearly explained just to hop onto that the only thing I'll, I'll add is that that is the litmus i think for whether or not they did a good job is whether you feel for this dragon and you you the goblins like where they introduce the, the noisemakers and and grip hooks telling oh yeah you know it's been trained to expect pain you're like wow this thing is just like so subjugated you want to see it escape and having them do the escape and and actually just seeing them destroy you know the Gringotts that we've known to come and love that main lobby area and like the chandelier and just blow out not only makes for a great scene at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, Diagon Alley, but uh, is a great movie moment, like a classic all time great movie moment. You know, I want to piggyback on this, too, because uh, I had a hard time deciding on mine and I had written in here just the final battle because that was exciting to see. But <laughs> I loved the scene where, where they are in Bellatrix's vault because of the UK cover. That's one of my favorite yes. covers across all the editions. 
and just seeing all that gold multiply. I don't know if it excites me because like, ooh, gold, value, money, <laughs> you know, but it's just, I don't know, something about it and the popping, the way, the way the gold like pops and duplicates, you know. Looks great in 3D. <laughs> I wouldn't know, I don't think. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I just really, I really, really loved that scene. And I think I was really looking forward to it because of that darn mm-hmm. Deathly Hallows UK cover. I think, Andrew, you and I have talked about this before, but there's this moment when the dragon breaks free and is on top of the bank. It breathes in the fresh air for the first time. And it's just such mm-hmm. a well done moment. I don't think like people a nice pick up on it as much, but if you rewatch Deathly Hallows Part 2, definitely watch for the dragon to just kind of like get its first breath of fresh air after finally yeah. being free. Right. It just sort of takes a moment before it flies off to be like, oh my gosh, fresh air. It's been a while. You mean before Hermione stuns it to make it move? Yeah. <laughs> she's like, okay, you've had your moment. Five minutes earlier, she's like, <laughs> pain on the dragon, that's barbaric. And then she's stunning it to get it moving. Hypocrite. The one I was most looking forward to, I think, is when they return to Hogwarts, when they have to go back through the Hogshead. Um, just because that was just such a such a nice moment to have in theaters where they see, you know, all of the students again. They're all ready for Harry to come back and save the day. That was just a really good one. Like, I think that's what I was most looking forward to. And I really liked the way that it came out, too. Mm-hmm. I remember the theater going crazy when Neville shows up out of the portrait. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And then for me, it was um, The Prince's Tale, right? Snape's memory. So good. I, it it so was. Perfect. And I, I think they actually did a really good job here without including a whole lot of dialogue. I, I know that might be confusing for just kind of the casual moviegoer, right? If If you don't really mm-hmm. follow along exactly what's happening. But um, yeah, there was just a lot that comes out of that particular scene all the information that we had been kind of hanging on for so long of a period of time right there were so many theories that were finally proven correct or incorrect depending on what you thought when you finally uh, got a glimpse into uh snape's memory i had forgotten they filmed so many individual scenes between gambin and rickman like, there's a lot re- there. Watching it, I was like, "Wow, they're they're actually really these are all in here." I was like, "This is crazy." Mm-hmm. And these scenes really made me love Michael Gambon as Dumbledore. He really is good. I like this interpretation of Dumbledore. Maybe it's a little rougher. Maybe it's a little, little ruder, but I like it. I like it so much. And I I also give it credit because my understanding is that Michael Gambon knew nothing about <laughs> Harry Potter. And he really was able to act like he did. And he really understood Dumbledore. Maybe he got some great direction from David Yates and the producers. But you could not tell that that guy didn't give two craps about yeah. the Harry Potter series. I agree. He owns Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. It was especially helpful that he didn't back Alan Rickman into any of the trophy cases as well. That was I appreciated that. <laughs> well, and we also have to say this is a testament to Alan, Alan Rickman, yeah. right? And this was the knowledge that he kept secret all these years. He finally gets to act out mm-hmm. the scene. And, you know, how do we feel about this particular change of placing Snape at the scene of Lily and James's death? As a strict movieism, it's interwoven with some of these scenes between Dumbledore and Snape. 
there is also the problematic nature of leaving a baby in a burning building to die. <laughs> like, to, you know, cause if he was there, he just kind of left Harry in the crib, but him holding Lily's body really does sell for general audiences and gives Snape gives Alan Rickman something more to do acting wise. Definitely. I guess in terms of leaving Harry there, he couldn't let on that he was there, <laughs> you know, yeah. But yeah, I think ha- yeah. being there really drove home the emotion of all those scenes and Snape's feelings. And it's just kind of like it's a shocker of a moment. Yeah. I feel like it was a very stylistic choice based on the way they sort of, as you said, Eric, interwove that into our maybe Micah, you said that interwove that into all of those scenes. Um, and yeah, I think for the movie, it actually works Aside from sort of like the realization that you have five minutes after you see it where you're like, man, he left that baby <laughs> in there. Like the, it's structurally not safe. It's like, right. Oh, come on. Maybe he put up a protection charm or two. Like, let's give him some credit. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. He yeah. lived, didn't he? He's wasn't the worst decision. Yeah. Well, wasn't Hagrid the one who pulled him out of it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But still, so we we talked about what scenes we were most looking forward to from the books. But were there any scenes that we were happily surprised by? I couldn't just pick one in this segment. Uh, First of all, the whole man, the boundaries, do your duty to our school. Like that is one of my all time favorite moments across all eight movies. Uh, McGonagall is just so good in that scene. Maggie Smith is so good, I should say. What about the line she delivers after? Awful. I liked that too. Micah, it was a you surprise. Do? Has that grown you on you? You needed these moments. You needed these moments of lightheartedness in the movie too. Mm. It's also dark and sad. So to have, oh, I always wanted to all do right. that spell. I like it. I love it all. Uh, it's kind of lame. You're all lame. But I think even worse is Molly's reaction. They didn't need that in there. She didn't like it like you two. It's the absence of any dialogue from Molly at all. She's in that shot. She's in the whole lead up. Like Julie Walters is in the scene and they're giving her no dialogue. So the fact that like she's just randomly there next to McGonagall when she's doing all this magic. And she's like, I always want to use that spell. And Julie Walters just kind of looks at her and like doesn't know what to say. I'm like, sorry, that's just awkward. Like, that's alongside. They had to hold for laughter and applause. Come on, people. It's oh, comedy. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I will agree that it is a little weird that Molly didn't say anything in that scene. Maybe before the, oh, I always wanted to do that spell. Yeah. Uh, but I think Molly's also re- uh, a reflection of the the seriousness of the evening. I don't know. She can't be like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just cut it is my point. Yeah. So we're. We're supposed to believe that McGonagall always wanted Hogwarts to be attacked <laughs> so that she could do. This. Or maybe she just wanted to make them. Mo- yeah. I Okay. It's does it does it make perfect sense? No, no. Nope. I still love it. It's an immensely powerful spell, though, if you think about it. Like I've always envisioned when she did that spell that it would almost like radiate throughout all of Hogwarts and all of the statues and all the suits of armor and everything else would come to life. Not like that little snippet where you just see like five statues jumping down from their posts. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, in the books, the suits of armor are already kind of half alive. Meh. 
another thing I just wanted to call out was generally the throwbacks in this movie. Ollivander saying the wand chooses the wizard again. Uh, I thought yeah. that was really special. Yeah. Um, going back to the chamber, like we spoke about earlier, and seeing the, the skeleton of the of the basilisk was cool. And then, of course, seeing all those who died in the forest. So all those throwbacks. And then finally, yes, I was pleasantly surprised by Voldemort's signs of weakness as each Horcrux was destroyed. Yes, I'm talking about the weird noises. Uh, uh, <laughs> I liked them. Okay, well, it's amazing you're able to play them directly from the film like that, Andrew. I should have known. <laughs> We're gonna perfect. get sued. <laughs> Would anybody like to try their best impression of these noises? I know mine are really good; they can't be beat. But you can give it a try too. <laughs> I think the worst one is the proclamation when he's like, Harry Potter is dead. And then he goes, Meh. Like, what, the f- what, what is that? <laughs> he dances a little bit. <laughs> I love everything about that. Because like, it strikes us as being weird or goofy, but tonally it's shifted because he really thinks he's won. Yeah. You, you can't take it too seriously here. Like, he really has, thinks he's won. He's the glee. He's like a... He's not human, by the way, so he's going to sound really weird when he, like, guffaws. <laughs> right. Would anybody else like to try? <laughs> there you go. What was that? <laughs> or, like, what about when he's casting a spell and he's like, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Well, I love go. every single one. Uh. I love every single one. <laughs> It's causing him great physical pain to stand up against Harry. His wand is betraying him. When y'all text me, I'm going to make those my ringtones. Each of you is going to have a different (laughs) Voldemort noise. Do you think they said to him, Rafe, look, the next time you have to take a dump, just take your phone in. Micah! (laughs) I mean... Micah! (laughs) I think this falls firmly in the category of overacting, um... But I don't don't hate it. I don't hate it at all. I think it perfectly because you have to like ground it somehow. You have to absolutely make it flesh just because he doesn't make those weird little sounds in the books doesn't mean like I just think it adds a level of unexpectedness maybe to the audience not expecting it. But also like just a reality of this is a, a being who actually feels and like pain and is disturbed from time to time. Yeah. All right, Micah, what what were you happily surprised by? Yeah, I mentioned it earlier, but I was happily surprised by the King's Cross scene, particularly Michael Gammon. I thought he did an amazing job uh, as Dumbledore and just the back and forth uh, with, with Harry in this scene. And um, yeah, he just has a lot of those iconic lines that um, Dumbledore has in the book and he, he delivers them really, really well. I'm going to have to go with Snape's death scene. I was really nervous about this mm. um, because, I mean, he he gets struck by uh, Nagini and then he cries into a vial and Harry takes that to see his memory. Right. And that could have played off so cheesy in the movie, but it didn't. They did a really great job with it. Again, I would give much of that credit to Alan Rickman and just what he brought to Snape and how talented of a performer he was. Um, I just really 
enjoy, I didn't enjoy the scene, but like I enjoyed how they portrayed it. I thought even though it was a bit different from the book, I still thought that it played off really, really well. Eric, how about you? Yeah, it's been mentioned before, but the return to the Chamber of Secrets. I love that door more than anything else in the entire world, the snake mm. door. And so mm-hmm. see, it's such a cool prop. It's amazing for the movies to have done that. And so to see it in action again, and also to justify it a little bit better, you know, I feel like they didn't have a lot to work with in the books when Ron is just like, you know, whatever I, I tried to speak parcel tongue, but having it be explained as Harry talks in his sleep really brings it to like a more recent uh, sample, you know, kind of size and it justifies Ron. So seeing that set again, which is one of the best sets, the door again, I just, that's, I, I was very delighted that they were back in the Chamber of Secrets because you know what happens in the books, but it's off scene. Mm-hmm. Off screen. Yeah, good point. The one that I was most surprised by was uh, how well Gringotts was done. I was kind of um, worried about how that was going to come across, but I, I think the whole thing was perfect. Like they're coming into Gringotts, being down in there in the vaults, and then the escape and the scene after where Voldemort realizes um, that they've been in the vault, the whole thing I just thought was incredible. And um, they're when they first get into Bellatrix's vault, um, the music that plays um, when they go in there is the same music as when Hagrid retrieves the Sorcerer's Stone um, from Gringotts. I went back and double checked just to make sure because I I just finished um, like a Harry Potter marathon over the weekend. And so it was fresh on my mind and I still double checked it. And it's the same music, which I thought was really cute that they just like brought it back that way. Interesting. Good catch. I didn't notice that. One of the things that we just wanted to mention that we had brought up earlier was, of course, that Deathly Hallows Part 2, while nominated for a number of Oscars, uh, did not win. They were nominated for Best Visual Effects, Best Production Design, and Best Makeup and Hairstyling. And that brought the total number of Oscars won by the Harry Potter series in totality to a big fat zero. So I know we probably have discussed this on prior episodes does that really mean anything to us? Probably not at the end of the day. I mean, it won plenty of other awards in other categories at other shows. Uh, but I, I really just think awards don't make a movie, like it, nor does it make a franchise. No. So if, if I, I think when we were talking about Return of the King earlier, it was just to kind of – they did that, I think, just to make good on the fact that they hadn't taken care of Lord of the Rings prior to that. That's fair. Ian J, who is listening live, she commented on our discussion on Voldemort's noises, and she said, oh no, this made me think about Cursed Child. What sounds did Bellatrix hear? Ooh. I hope the same ones. Wow. If you get our drift. There's a mental Oof. thought. All right, so I also wanted to touch on the epilogue, because mm. there was a little drama around this. Mm. They initially filmed the epilogue on location at King's Cross, but they ultimately decided to reshoot it. And I think the second time they actually shot it in studio rather than back at King's Cross. Why did they reshoot it? The lead characters in their older years looked really bad. They shot on location, so there were paparazzi photos. In fairness, these are paparazzi photos. They're not going to be shot at the best angle and the best lighting, when they're actually acting, etc. But if you look at these, Ron's hair, like he's got a receding hairline and his hair looks like it hasn't been washed. 
Tom Felton's Draco looks very old. Hermione, I, she probably looks the best amongst everybody. Uh, Harry as well, re- kind of to me, it looks like a receding hairline. And then I found this interview with David Yates uh, because Entertainment Weekly had asked him uh, why they reshot it. And he said, I didn't want older actors. If you spent seven movies with these guys, you know these kids and you want to end with them. We ended up with a scene that for all sorts of reasons, not just the makeup, just didn't work. I asked the studio to have a second pop at it with a very simple solution. Simple makeup, which may be enhanced slightly with special effects. That's really charming. And David Heyman added, we thought about a nostalgic look. We thought about it. We thought about a nostalgic. <laughs> we thought about a nostalgic nice look back at how the kids have grown over the previous films. We decided against it because this ending captures all of that. Mm. So to me, this says not only did they not like how the characters looked, they wanted them to look older, but not too much older. And they didn't like the dialogue. It's yeah, it's bad. They're 36. They look 63. Eric, your point, like they're in their thirties. It's not like they're, you know, grandparents. Dropping they had a rough their, couple their of years rebuilding the, the Wizarding World. Experience. Yeah. yeah, and actually, I'll say this is a scene that's kind of grown on me a little bit in rewatching the movie. Um, having known that they had to do a a retake of this, I actually think they look fine for the most part now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree. I thought it was fine. I'm not a huge fan of the epilogue just in general in the book or in the movie. So I I thought the way that they did it was fine. It's nice to see them grown up. It's nice to see their kids. Um, I did notice actually that um, the guy that they, not the guy, the child that they got to play Albus Severus, he really looked like he could be the child of Bonnie and Dan. Yeah, He looked like a really good mix between the two. Okay, so we are going to get to a debate about the movie in a moment. But first, this week's episode of MuggleCast is also brought to you by someone who makes my evenings so much better, HelloFresh, and we are going to hook you up with some free food. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less. Even though I primarily use them for dinner, they have all kinds of meals. They have quick and easy meals, 15 to 20 minute dinners, breakfast on the go, and more easy options perfect for your busy lifestyle. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items each week, including ready-to-eat salads, sandwiches, and soups. From working with farmers to reducing waste, there is a lot to love about HelloFresh, including the flexibility. Easily change your delivery day, food preferences, plan size, or skip a week whenever you need. The recipe cards are super easy to follow, and then when you taste the food, you will be so proud of yourself. What's also nice about these is that you're being introduced to meals you would have never thought of before, in part because HelloFresh guides you through adding new twists to some of your favorites. You gotta give them a try. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Go to HelloFresh.com Muggle14 and use code Muggle14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash Muggle14 and use code Muggle14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit and my number one way of improving my evenings. And by the way, if you need that link or that code for this sponsor or our earlier sponsor, visit the show notes of today's episode. Okay, time for a debate. 
So this is a segment that we are bringing back. We have not done it in a while, but it's always a good time. And remember that in a debate, it's not a matter of who is right and who is wrong. It is a matter of who presents the best argument. So sweet, sweet votes, baby. On side number one, (laughs) arguing that Deathly Hallows part two got it right and was the ending we had all hoped for are Andrew, Molly, and Eric. And on the other side, saying that Deathly Hallows Part 2 had two chances to get it right, and it fell harder than Dumbledore from the Astronomy Tower are myself and Laura. Molly, Eric, either of you itching to get started? Molly, you should start us off. I mean, they're the only movies we got. I know that's not the greatest argument, but it's the first one that comes to mind for me. Um, I I feel like they got a lot of things right. Like, we're all very emotionally tied to the movies. So obviously they did something right there. They're fun to watch. They addressed most of the major plot points. They didn't leave out anything that just totally wrecked the movies. As an adult now, I don't have any problems with them. As a nitpicky teenager, didn't love them. But now... For the nostalgic factor, I think they're great. I think they got it right, especially at the end. I think you can argue that they got the movie right because now, 10 years later, we still watch this movie and we are still moved by most of what we see in it. I was moved watching the movie last night. The anticipation, the final battle, the forbidden forest. There's just so much to love in this movie And the seriousness of it all is mixed in with these occasionally lighthearted moments. I always wanted to do that spell. Oh, McGonagall, I love you. That is such a great line for this moment. It breaks the ice. The fact that I can watch this 10 years later and still be moved by it and still be satisfied by it just tells me that they did this right. And that 96% on Rotten Tomatoes was also very right. In summary, if Deathly Hallows Part 1 was the actors coming into their roles, really growing as actors, becoming adults, and becoming their characters, then Deathly Hallows Part 2 is the farewell to a franchise that affected and changed all of their lives. And you get to see those characters one last time as they fight for their lives and defeat evil. And it's a very satisfying conclusion to what was logistically a decade of nightmares in behind the scenes production and the end result is polished and pleasing we should have had micah and laura go first because basically we're (laughs) summarizing this episode so micah and laura let's hear why they screwed it up so i am someone who has genuinely mixed feelings about this movie and to the points that were raised earlier i do think there are several things that the movie got right. Unfortunately, anything that comes after the trio getting back to Hogwarts destroys the rest of the movie for me. And here's why. They set up two really important major plot points in Deathly Hallows Part 1 that they did not follow through on on Part 2. And that is Ariana's backstory, which is tied into the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore and his connection to Grindelwald, um, as well as the Deathly Hallows themselves. There was so much emphasis placed on the tale of the three brothers that I was really anticipating that they were going to fully close that loop in part two. 
And it felt more implied. It felt more like a plot point that they thought, eh, we've given enough information on this. We don't really need to spend too much time revisiting it. And then to end the movie with Harry snapping the Elder Wand and throwing it into a body of water, that completely diminishes uh, the purpose of him realizing that with him would die the ability to control the Elder Wand. Again, it was a really nice full circle moment for the films. Um Let's see. I wrote down some points all throughout the episode of things that really bother me about Uh-oh. this. I also feel I also feel like death scenes are really diminished in part two of Deathly Hallows, with the exception of Snape. I thought that one was done well. But Bellatrix, Voldemort exploding into little tiny pieces of ash. Um, it's pretty lame. It undermines um, the impact of seeing these characters that you've grown to hate for years and years, you know, getting that satisfaction of a dead body thudding on the ground. <laughs> um, instead, we only get dead bodies after the fact for the good guys and the heroes that we love who don't even get the send off they deserve. So it really just felt like they put so much time and effort into the buildup and then ultimately didn't put a lot of thought and effort into the payoff of the film. Yeah, I I agree, Laura. And exactly with what you said, that most of my issues come after the trio arrive uh, at Hogwarts. Now, I'll go back and start with the point I made earlier in the episode. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 is the shortest film of all eight. This is the finale. This is it. You don't get any more so after what? it. H- hold on. Less is not necessarily more all the time. You made the decision to cut this movie, this book, into two movies. And you d- made the decision to then only give us two hours and 10 minutes of screen time, right? Now, the final battle. What battle? Okay. What battle? There was none. <laughs> Really, the Death Eater spent more time shooting spells at the protective shield around Hogwarts than they did at Dumbledore's army or anybody else who was fighting. Like, think about the opportunity you had. You had a scene from the books where you had McGonagall, Slughorn, Kingsley Shacklebolt, who were dueling Voldemort. That didn't make it into the movies. You could have had really cool duels going on between all these different wizards. Instead, you had like Hermione firing one spell to knock Fenrir Greyback into a wall. Like, It just did not deliver when you're talking about final battles. You want to know why Return of the King won an Oscar? Because the final battle was effing awesome, right? Not so in Deathly Hallows. And Eric, you made the point, oh, you get to see all those characters. And what characters? Where was Percy? Where was Oliver Wood? Where was Grop? Where were all the characters that were given to us throughout the course of the Harry Potter series? You you were missing the whole like, Hogsmeade villagers, Hogwarts families, centaurs, hippogriffs, thestrals, house elves. None of them were there. None. We got nothing. And of course, we've talked about the weird Harry Voldemort end sequence, which was just, you know, I mean, okay, they needed to have symbolism of them intertwining with each other as they battled through the grounds of Hogwarts and did weird S&M stuff to each other, tying each other up and who knows what 
And yeah, the epilogue too. That was a mess. Wow. Well, y'all just ruined this episode for me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> so look, I respect those opinions, but I I stand by the fact that I got feelings out of this movie, even after all this time. And for that reason alone, I'm good with it. I smiled. I cried on the inside. I laughed. I just had a good time. I don't know what you want me to say. Yeah, I just feel like the equivalent of like a wizarding world war is not a laughing matter. (laughs) Definitely wasn't in the books. You need breaks. You need breaks from that. Yeah, but I mean, if you're going to see any other war movie, are they like, oh, man, I've always wanted to use that cannon like... (laughs) <laughs> this is Harry Potter. It's a children's series. It was very adult by the end, though. We've had that discussion a million times on the show. But but in big action movies, there are one-liners that are mm-hmm. funny, that break mm-hmm. the mood. Come on, everything in Independence Day wasn't super serious. It was a joke, yeah. Well, Independence yeah. Day was kind of intended to be a joke, was it not? Like... Okay, not the best example. I'm I'm just there's always <laughs> moments in films to break the ice, to break that tension. I don't disagree with that. No, I I mean those moments don't bother me as much. I I my problem was that you really weren't getting a finale. Like when when you think of a, of a finale, it's everybody coming together, all all the little you know, things that, that we had appreciated throughout the course of the series. And I feel like they fell flat on a lot of that, right? Like when you're talking about bringing the entire wizarding community together against Voldemort and his Death Eaters, they didn't do that in the movies. Well, they had to tie up the ends that they made. There was so much omitted from the books in previous installments that they you could only realistically tie up what you yourself hath wrought. So for Tamale's example about, you know, the Percy scene, Percy's backstory, not really explained about how he's a ministry guy. You have that scene in the movie. It actually doesn't work so well um, for general audiences. So I feel like they made the movie that was the thrilling gripping conclusion to all the other movies. And they, you know, it may suffer from an adaptation standpoint when you're looking at what wasn't included, but from a movie standpoint, they, worked with the characters that they could and use them in the best way that made sense for the movies. What what would have been the harm? I mean, because you're using Percy, what's the harm in bringing Percy back? People know Percy. You can bring Percy him back. Percy was back. He was, he was there. there. Yeah. Well, yeah. not but, in the but, scene that but, we were talking about, but No, I know, but You get a line about how Slugcord couldn't find his wand because it was in the folds of his robes or something. Like that works for Jim Broadbent's Slughorn. It wouldn't work in the books when he's a lot more nuanced and Slughorn is like, you're like, what side is he going to go on? Because he is a Slytherin. But then he duels Voldemort, to your point. But, you know, there's certain things that I really feel like the movies prior didn't earn that scene being in the finale. And so they had to make some hard decisions as far as what would have made sense in the world of the films, having realized their horrible job at adaptation uh, versus in the other films in the other books. But it was the same team that adapted Deathly Hallows Part 1, and they didn't follow through on some of what they set up in that film. Well, Ariana gets a call out. Uh, Aberforth says, you know, Dumbledore gave her everything. 
except time. That's a perfect mm-hmm. one sentence summary of what really happened between Dumbledore and Arnett. You want three sentences? You want 18 like in the book? Okay, we can talk. But it's not like it was completely discarded. And they left the door open for Fantastic Beasts. It was all part in the of gaps. the it was plan. All David Yates's plan. Yeah, backdoor pilot, as it's called. That's kind of what was going yeah, on there. I'm, I'm sure that's what they were thinking of. Left you wanting more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember all the Quidditch scenes over the course of the eight movies? Backdoor pilot for Quidditch Through the Ages, the <laughs> movie, Andrew coming Lincoln. in 2029. Yes. Starring Thank Andrew you. Lincoln, audiobook narrator. Yeah. In Walking Dead, quitter. I mean, to Eric's point, though, about you know them not setting up as much in the earlier movies, isn't that also their fault, though? Like, uh, Yes, but cannot be included in part of a judgment zone about Deathly Hallows Part 2. They finished the but film you just series that it. they had... Well, they, they finished the film series that they had made. Right. There are impossible expectations to meet with the final movie. Impossible! You can't possibly please everybody. And they did a damn good job. If you don't believe me, look at Rotten Tomatoes. That's my closing point. I'll just close by saying the decision was made to take Deathly Hallows and to split it into two parts. That gave them the opportunity to be able to tell as much of the story as they possibly could in the right way possible. And they failed to do it. And I know you jokingly come back at me when I say that the film was two hours and 10 minutes and it's the shortest one in the franchise. But again, you split the last book. Like, What would this movie have been if you went the same route you had with with the six books prior? You had the time. You could have made this a two and a half hour movie and gotten in plenty more stuff in 20 minutes or made it a two hour and 45 minute movie. People would have still gone and seen it. How long were the Lord of the Rings movies and people still went to see them? So I just think when you look at the fact that they they cheapened the fandom by only giving them this much time for the final film, it makes it hard to argue that it was the finale we all deserved. All right. So listeners, who do you think won the debates? Without naming names, I will say one side was definitely more detail-oriented, at least at the beginning. (laughs) So uh, we will put up polls on our social media channels, and you can vote. When you do vote, we ask – we're not asking for your side, and I say that with peace and love. Uh, We're asking for who won this particular debate. Peace and love, peace and love. That'll help us get – I I say that because we want to know who actually won this debate, not your own personal opinion, though we are interested in that. I want to revisit the epilogue quickly because I was doing some Googling while we were talking here, and there is this quote from Rupert Grant. He says of the original shoot, the images of me still haunt me. (laughs) It was like this monster Donald Trump kind of mixture. It was scary. Wow. He said this in 2011. Wow. <laughs> he must have been in a, if a only fan of he the knew. Apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. huh. Interesting. Very interesting. And that was an interview by one of our friends, actually, Terry Schwartz, when she was at MTV oh, News. I love it. Yeah. 
If you have any feedback about today's discussion, and we're sure you do, email mugglecast at gmail.com or use the contact form on mugglecast.com. You can also call us 1-920-3-MUGGLE. That's 1-920-368-4453. You can also leave us a voice memo. Use that voice memo, memo app on your smartphone. Email that file to mugglecast at gmail.com. And just try to keep your message about a minute long, please. It's time for Quizage. Last week's question, Kieran Hines, who portrays Aberforth Dumbledore in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, starred alongside fellow Potter alums Gary Oldman, Toby Jones, and John Hurt in the film adaptation of this novel by John LeCare. What is the name of the movie? The answer, of course, is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. A good film. Good version. Gary Oldman's great in it. Correct answers were submitted to us using the Quizich form on the MuggleCast website, and here were the names of the winners. We got Momo, Bort Voldemort, Quaffle Yeeter, Sarah Martin, Peevesy Once Pringles, A Lost Packet of Dribble's Best Blowing Gum, Sham, Being Me Has Its Privileges, Wormtail's Manky Yellow Crut... I'm not reading that one. Divianarian, <laughs> uh, Micah's Radio Voice, Landon Can't Think of a Funny Name, and... The potato takeover has gone smoothly, and every human is now a mindless potato planter to grow the potato population. What should the human race do now? All right. We should add a character limit to this <laughs> form, I think. <laughs> oh, actually, if, yeah, if we could do that, that'd be great. <laughs> no, no, keep your log ones coming. Well, <laughs> peace and love. Uh, peace and love. But don't, don't over uh, exert us. Uh, otherwise, yes. Come I on, will stop reading. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Congratulations to all the winners, and here is next week's question. Five years after Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, the franchise was continued with the first Fantastic Beasts film. What is the first spoken sentence of Fantastic Beasts? Ooh. Submit your answers to us over on the MuggleCast website. Smidgen. Okay. <laughs> just, just a smidge. <laughs> Eric, uh, in your quizage answer, you mentioned somebody named Divya, and she was actually the person who sent us an email and recommended today's discussion that we talk about the 10-year anniversary of Deathly Hallows Part 2. So thanks to her for sending in that suggestion and for, uh, well, she didn't create the discussion, but she kind of did. So thanks to her. She yeah. inspired it. And thanks Thank for playing Quizich. And speaking of movie anniversaries, we're coming up on 20 years since Sorcerers slash Philosopher's Stone, and we will just do some discussions on that later this year and probably do a movie commentary as well. I feel like we should do another Deathly Hallows Part 2 commentary, because when I was watching it last night, I had so much to say about it. I'd be down. It'd be fun to do that again. We already did one, but... I'm sure we'd have plenty of new things to say. It would be nuts to do that and then play them both at the same time as we go through the film. <laughs> play our commentary and the movie while Just recording like a new commentary. MuggleCast commentary for the thing. It would be amazing. That's available on the MuggleCast website, by the way. The original commentary. It's on the wall. Uh, no, it's it's on the must listens page. We renamed the page a few months ago. Couple other reminders. Don't forget to join our community of MuggleCast fans today at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. You'll receive instant access to years of bonus MuggleCast installments, our exclusive Facebook group where fellow Harry Potter fans hang out with one another. 
You'll also receive early access to each new episode of MuggleCast in an ad-free format. You'll receive a personalized video thank you message from one of the four of us. We also send out a new physical gift every year. Info on this year's physical gift probably coming in the next month or two. It's a little later than normal. And also, you can get in line to one day become a MuggleCast co-host just like Molly did today. Thanks for joining us today, Molly. Thank you for having me. You were great. Yeah, of course. Bonus points to Hufflepuff for wearing your MuggleCast shirt today. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks for your support on Patreon. We would also appreciate if listeners made sure you're following MuggleCast in whatever app you use to listen to the show so you never miss an episode. And speaking of your podcasting app, if they have a review system, we would appreciate if you left a review to help new listeners learn about us. And finally, last but not least, follow us on social media. We are MuggleCast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And LinkedIn. Thanks, everybody, for listening to today's episode. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. I'm Laura. And I'm Molly. Bye. Bye.